Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, Jason, that was so many emotional songs. <laughs> it's a good thing, though. Very good songs. Um, something I forgot to announce is Gianna's not here because she was having what seemed to be an ear, inner ear infection. Um, so she was at the doctor this morning. Um, and then something else that might be weird to mention, um, I was remembering an illustration used in the Bible class where someone asked who all believes they're going to heaven if you died right now. I remembered, so sitting down, someone did raise their hand in that group, and they, they said, I remember they explained why they raised their hand was because of their confidence in God's forgiveness, which plays Romans 8. Anyway, I just thought it might be good to clarify that since I remembered that. Uh, anyway, we're in Titus chapter 2. So this is continuing the year-long series as we're going through Titus, uh, which when you think about it and think more personally about it, is a really challenging book because everything that's said in Titus is so personal. Um, but with everything we've studied today, with like Romans 8, the songs that we've sang, uh, everything that God has done, the glory of his work, what he's continuing to do, the hope he's given us, the example of Jesus, all of that was to accomplish something very specific, to bring us back into the image of God. And all of these qualities are expressions of what that means, to be a person who is truly living as a reflection of God's direct image. And these qualities are not just meant to, I think, I think they're not meant to be perceived in a worldly way where there's no just ceiling on these things. But God's character and Jesus' example are really the, the lens through which we are to see these qualities. So ultimately, we're seeing things like temperance, dignity, sensibility, self-control, what it means to have faith, love, perseverance. All of these things fit in their proper context when we're seeing those things through Christ first, not just through what it may look like in general in the world. But let's read Titus uh, 1 and 2 and think about what it's saying here with instructions specifically to older men. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So just a couple things still by introduction. Number one is verse 1. There's a lot of different aspects of what's involved in sound teaching. Uh, but the, the idea of something being sound, if you think about it, like if somebody is in their sound mind, they're in their healthy, full frame of mind. So the idea of sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. Uh, and that would be doctrine as God desires it to be. It's as God teaches it to be, as God says it to be. And when we're not being partial with it, where there might be things that make us uncomfortable, things that are maybe more difficult to practice or accept, uh, to teach and practice sound doctrine is to approach God's will without any bias or partiality. Whatever he says goes. The hard thing about sound doctrine as it relates to people, not just religious practice, is there's a need to be humbled by how much farther these things can and ought to be taken in our lives. So verse 2 is older men, verse 3, older women, uh, and that relates to older women Verse 6, young men, and verse 9, uh, servants, which I think has a lot to do with our work environment and how we operate as employees in a work environment. It's all very personal, right? 
So I want to encourage you to have the attitude like what's encouraged, again, in the Proverbs, to seek wisdom, to seek understanding. Uh, as helpful as it might be to define these things, it really becomes empty and meaningless if they are not pursued uh, very personally outside of the context of just talking about them in terms of this study. So if, if you find things in this that you find convicting or helpful, just really try to hold on to those things uh, through the week. And then obviously, this is specifically to older men. And so, uh, Jim, that would be you. Uh, Jason's getting there. I don't know if he's quite there. Uh, Brandon's getting there as well. But even beyond that, you know, it's something that all men, young and old, need to strive towards. So this would apply, uh, obviously, to me and thinking about qualities to develop. But it's certainly who older men are to be, not just to become. This is who they are, who they are to be uh, very presently. Um, so it's important to think about this very personally. Um, but I think as we talk about the principle of what these qualities mean, there, there are things universal to be applied and understood by, by everybody. So let's start with the idea of being temperate here. So there's six qualities. And the hard thing is, as I'm studying for these things and thinking about these things, it's like every one of these qualities becomes a sermon. So I'm going to do my best to try to condense them. I've obviously already done that in my outline. But I'm going to do my best to just trust that with few words, maybe much can be conveyed here about these things. Uh, in verse 30, temperance, or verse 2 rather, temperance is the first quality, but your translation may say sober-minded. It may also say self-controlled. Uh, we've already tackled this a little bit with the qualities for elders, that some of these things can be a little bit tricky to define into one consistent word. Uh, but I do think temperance is a very fair definition in translation. And I'll tell you why. The Greek word that's translated to English as temperance comes from a word that means literally to be calm, to be collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, and circumspect. It's the idea of how you handle your emotions, especially as I've put on the board here. Um, doing my best to kind of define it biblically, to navigate intense emotional pressures and passions by God's righteousness rather than being self-directing uh, with those things or letting my emotions control me and command me rather than letting God's truth control and command my emotions. Uh, what we're not talking about is um, a personality trait. So some people are obviously more introverted. Uh, maybe someone just has a more quiet or reserved disposition. Uh, but we're not talking about somebody who may just be more quiet or reserved. We're also not talking about somebody who's just passive about everything, right? Somebody might seem temperate because they just don't care about anything. <laughs> They're not invested in anyone. They don't care about anyone. They're not invested in anything. And so they really don't have very much trouble being calm because they're not invested enough in people or in things to be alarmed or anxious or upset about anything. Uh, I would argue again that Jesus was the most temperate person who ever lived. And People never determined, circumstances never determined Jesus' temperament. Even when Jesus responded strongly, spoke strongly, felt strong things, those things never were out of control for Jesus, right? Everything was brought under control of God's righteousness for Jesus. So it's not that we don't feel strong anger, strong anger, strong frustration, strong depression, strong anxiety. It's not that we don't feel those things. It's that even in the intensity of those pressures and passions, 
we still learn to bring those things into subjection to God's righteousness. Uh, just a couple of verses that I think help with this fundamentally. Uh, I'll kind of come back to this at the end of talking about this point. Turn to Matthew 5. Um, I think the Sermon on the Mount fundamentally uh, equips us to be temperate and to have temperance. If, if we apply fundamentally Jesus' very first sermon in the Bible, it is the keys to temperance. Um, but just some principles here uh, that I think help lead us in maybe a more practical direction with this and how we grow in this. Jesus' first words, uh, I think, deal directly with temperance and are the foundation for temperance. Starts his first sermon, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number one, we learn to be temperate when we learn to see the blessing, the reward of allowing God to confront our emotions and deal with our emotions. When a person is poor in spirit and they see that there's a blessing in that, that through reflection, through regret, I think that's where this poor in spirit is coming from, I'm letting God dig into my heart. I'm reflecting on my emotions, my feelings, my actions, decisions. I'm letting God lead me in regret and remorse. And look at verse 4. Learning to find comfort in God. So number one, seeing the blessing of letting God into my emotions, letting him lead my emotions, my reflection, regret, even remorse. But number two, finding comfort in the Lord. That's something that I didn't realize for the longest time. Really, I spent the majority of my life with a very shallow faith that was easily uh, shaken. Um, but in my youth, I never learned the value of temperance. Uh, I never learned the value of actually letting God direct my emotions. And so I dealt with anger, sadness, frustration in ways that festered in my heart and made me a very explosive, very angry, very easily embittered and violent person. And I still struggle with ripple effects, repercussions of that today. Um, and it's profoundly impacted me to invest in the Lord and see that fundamentally God is somebody who desires to give people comfort, strength, and stability. That's, that's how the Sermon on the Mount starts. Number three, Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. So once Jesus starts getting into what I think is more the instructive part of the sermon, the very first thing he deals with is temperance. So in verse 21, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to the court. But I see to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. So number three, well, review. Number one, seeing the blessing of letting God lead our emotions and confront our emotions. Number two, letting God comfort us, finding comfort in the Lord through sorrow, depression, whatever. Number three, seeing the deceit and the danger of uncontrolled emotions. Did you know that one of the greatest battles we face with truth is our emotions. And I'll kind of let you into to my emotions here. Um, when I get really frustrated, my emotions actually command me to do things. So for instance, when I'm really frustrated, for example, the other day I was frustrated in the car. And my emotions were telling me, punch the dashboard again and again and again until you break the radio screen. I didn't do that. <laughs> but Although I may know in my mind, no, 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 that's not the right thought, that's not the right thought, that's not the right thought, 
I may to some lesser degree still act out verbally or in another way that still isn't temperate, right? Uh, and so a lot of this is as we start with the foundation of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, uh, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. We recognize that there is a danger if I act by my emo- if I let my emotions determine truth, no matter how strong they are, if I obey my emotions, that is deceptive, it is destructive. So my emotions tell me this will relieve you. It'll feel better if you punch that dashboard. It's going to feel really good. I'll tell you another way my emotions command me. I struggle with depression. And when I'm depressed, when I'm struggling emotionally, my mind can feed me thoughts of, you're worthless. You're a failure. Everything you're doing is ineffective. Everyone you're trying to help, you're actually hurting them. You're not doing anything that's actually glorifying God. And the, how rapid and how loud these thoughts can be, again, my emotions are telling me something. And I have a decision. Am I going to say, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true? Or am I going to see that God's truth holds higher authority? That my mind may tell me those things, but in anger, I'm only going to do something that is destructive if I act on anger or frustration my own way. In depression, if I focus on myself, that's only going to further the problem. Do I see the value, the healing path that God's truth provides? So in verse 22, it's not just, you know, you yourself with your own anger having danger, but saying things out of anger can be very destructive and there are consequences. Recognizing that is important. Verse 44, this is kind of number four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we did that, do you think that would help us with temperance? If the people who instigate us, or even the problems, because there's always an enemy behind our problems and our turmoil, right? Whether it's a person or the devil. But in terms of a person, if somebody is causing me some kind of distress or conflict, what if instead of festering on that, I very quickly prayed about it? The key to temperance is genuinely desiring healing and learning that God's method for providing healing is vastly superior to when I act on my own initiative, on my own judgment. When I let my emotions command me, it is only deceptive. It is only destructive. A lack of temperance shows a neglect of applying Jesus's most fundamental teaching. A lack of temperance, a lack of emotional control, shows a lack of application, a neglect of Jesus's most fundamental teaching. And older men are to learn these things, to learn to have control of emotion, not by self, but by the will of God. In Titus chapter 2, it continues that older men are to be dignified. Uh, Turn back to Titus, and we'll look at chapter 3. Some translations will say grave or reverent. Not grave as in, like, dead, but grave as in serious, uh, heavy. Uh, Well, if I can get back to Titus. I have it marked, and I was just flipping around. Uh, Titus chapter 3. I think tells us a little bit more about what this means, but I've summarized this on the board that it just means to show respect or to show honor and to behave, speak, and and live in a way that is worthy of respect or worthy of honor. What does that look like? How do you cultivate that? Uh, Titus chapter three, I think, tells us pretty clearly. 
Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every, showing every consideration for all men. So what does it mean to be dignified? Number one, to be actively obedient. Is it honorable for a person to not be submissive when they ought to be? Or do you perceive someone to be honorable if they never take initiative with tasks that they really need to accomplish or ways they really need to be involved? involved. Is someone honorable if they always have to be micromanaged and you just can't trust them to be reliable? That's, that's ultimately not honorable. So verse 1 of Titus, Titus chapter 3, to be subjective, to be obedient, but then also at the... Uh, Oh, where did it go? Uh, It's the end of verse one, to be ready for every good deed. To be respectable or worthy of respect is to be very proactive in obedience and good works. It means to be kind. So in verse two, this is something that constantly convicts me. I really struggle with this, to malign no one. And I struggle with it because as I think about it, that the lengths that this forbiddance can be taken, a lot of times maligning is humorous. To mock at someone or something, to speak against them is, man, that is the majority of the world's humor. And very often, it's just you get drawn into that, that humor of making fun of someone or belittling someone. And mind you, this isn't saying show honor to people who you decide deserve it. Malign no one. Speak against no one. First Peter 2 would say, honor all people. To be respectable means that you're thinking outside of yourself about the principle of honor and kindness. That we strive to be kind to everyone, to be considerate. In verse 2, another one that I find very challenging, the New American Standard has an emphasis I really appreciate, showing every consideration for all men. Do you think it would make someone more honorable if you could see in them that they're just deeply considerate? about circumstances, about people they're interacting with, what bothers people, what hurts people, that they're very careful, not in that they're trying to idolize everybody's preference, whatever. They're just, they're just considerate. And I think that's Romans 13, verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Honor is the life of a Christian. You know, not just being stoic, not just being somebody who just is trying to give some appearance of just being flawless, But somebody who is, again, actively obedient, they show respect, they're kind, and they're considerate. That's what it means to be dignified, treating serious things as serious. To be sensible. Uh, I'll be kind of brief on this one because we talked about this with the qualifications of an elder. Um, This is another one where your translation may say self-controlled or sober as well. Uh, But the idea of sensible is it comes from a Greek compound word, compound word, two words that are put together. Um, and the, the words mean whole or healthy minded. And the word for minded is especially the part of your thinking that relates to your judgments and your decisions. So again, biblically, I've tried to summarize it. It's, it's to exercise godly wisdom, prudence, sensibility, when you're encountering diverse positions, people, and problems, right? It's the idea of being a problem solver. You know, that when, you, when you're confronted with a problem, whether that's a problem of circumstance, something unexpected has happened, you don't let it overwhelm you. It doesn't just frustrate you or discourage you. 
You're constantly thinking, well, what do I do right? What's the practical thing to do right now? What's the sensible thing? Somebody who is solution-oriented is a sensible person. And so instead of letting frustrations with people become discouraging and embittering, instead of letting problems just frustrate you and, and drown you, you're seeking counsel from God. You're seeking counsel from other people, from people who are older or wiser or experienced, and you're not neglecting problems or ignoring them. You're not entering into a problem, escalating the problem or the tension, uh, but you are entering a problem to try to resolve it and to uh, solve it in the best way possible. Uh, so again, to be sensible has a lot to do with how do you make decisions and what kind of wisdom do you use in the decisions that you make, whether big decisions or smaller, more personal daily decisions. And then we have sound in faith, love, and perseverance. And there's this word sound again. So there's, there's obviously a difference between having a kind of faith, but it's not really a sound faith. Or maybe you exhibit some form of love, but it's not sound. It's not whole. It's not healthy. And maybe you have some perseverance, but it's, it's, again, it's not a sound perseverance. So sound is the qualifier for each of these three terms here at the end of the verse. Older men are to be sound in faith, they are to be sound in love, and they are to be sound in perseverance. So what does it mean to be sound in faith? And this can be kind of difficult uh, to define, uh, as faith, again, is a bit of an ambiguous concept to define. But I'd summarize it as somebody who is, they're fixed on God. You know, their trust is in God, his character, who he is, what he's done. They're, they're focused on his work. They think about his work. They are motivated by his work. And they think about his promises. You know, they live on the basis of God's promises. And they're not partial with these things. So I think the idea of having a faith that is not sound is having a partiality with faith. That there's aspects of God that I really like. That maybe those seem more personally attractive or beneficial. But maybe there's other parts of who God is that aren't as easily digested or isn't as easy for me to accept or admire. An impartial and sound faith takes God for who he is. An impartial and sound faith, a whole faith, sees goodness in everything God teaches. No matter how much sacrifice is involved, no matter what needs to be endured in a process of obedience, Everything that God says, no matter what it is, is good and is superior, exceedingly superior to any judgment I would otherwise make. So it means not being double-minded. Jesus warns about this again in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. You have to make a decision. James warns about seeking wisdom, but being a double-minded man who doesn't really have faith that God is going to provide the things that he promises, or you lose interest because of the difficulties involved in gaining what you're asking for. So it's not being half-hearted, not partial, not double-minded. And I think, lastly, with what it means to be sound in faith, this is particularly evident in an older man's devotion to prayer. How important is prayer to you? We studied in Acts chapter 12 last week that the church was fervent in prayer. Uh, and that's something that continuously convicts me when I think about how devoted the church was to prayer, how devoted God tells me to be toward prayer, and yet how little I pray. 
and how little investment I make emotionally in my needs in prayer. An older man, older man is to be experienced with seeing the value of prayer and emphasizing in himself his dependence on God and the priority that he puts on prayer. Sound and love. And again, if there's a sound love, there is an unhealthy love or a love that is not whole. To have a sound love is to strive to be a servant just as Christ was a servant. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, there's so many verses that talk about love. It was really difficult about where to go to summarize this idea of a sound love. I debated going to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, but then I was like, I think I'll be tempted to make a sermon out of every one of those qualities, so probably best to stay away from that. Um, but that certainly would be a place to go to define a, a sound or whole love as it gives a lot of qualities. However, uh, for the sake of time and summary, 1 John chapter 4, 9 through 11, by this, the love of God was manifested uh, uh, I lost my place. I looked away. And this is love. Uh, no, verse 9. By this, is, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here's how I've summarized this with kind of this idea of being a servant just as Christ was a servant. There's obviously a lot that goes into that, but in 1 John 4, 9 through 11, you know, there's a lot of statements that are made here. Verse 9, why was Jesus sent into the world? To forgive us and then we just kind of figure it out on our own or just live a good moral life? No, in verse 9, he was sent into the world so that we might live through him. So the idea about a sound love is that we initiate. Jesus initiated. God initiated. It's not that we loved him. It's that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. It's that he initiated. He invests. He builds. So to love in a healthy way is to initiate without waiting for the other person to do it. It's not saying, I wish they would treat me better. I wish they would have more spiritual conversations with me. I wish we could interact more like this. It's no, if I take the initiative, I will strive to build and resolve any problems I see in this relationship or build a bridge that needs to be built. God help me to be the one to initiate and to resolve these things. And it's to invest. So you notice in verse uh, 11, there's a one another statement there. In 1 John especially, when there's a one another statement, it's emphasizing relationships within the church. So obviously a sound love relates to how we would love anybody in our community, whether Christian or not. Uh, you think about the good Samaritan and how he loved someone that he didn't even know, just a complete stranger. However, there is a particular emphasis that the love of God prioritizes building relationships with brethren above all. A sound love is evident when a person is building and initiating, investing in, and proactively prioritizing building relationships among God's people in a way that is a reflection of the kind of instructions that we see here in 1 John. And then finally, think about Jesus and the way he loved people. Was Jesus always just patting people on the back? 
saying the things that were convenient, doing things that weren't very difficult. The thing about God's love is it is a high calling, right? And so love is exhibited not just when somebody is very friendly and just always easy to be around, but when they're willing to say things for the Lord that are hard to say, and when they're willing to do things that are not easy to do, and willing to do those things when they're not noticed, not recognized, not appreciated. Uh, Again, Jesus is the lens through which we understand love. So love invests in, it builds relationships, especially with God's people, but it's willing to do and say things that are needed, they are good, but they are difficult. And finally, sound and perseverance. And again, if there's a sound perseverance, there's an unhealthy perseverance, or maybe somebody has a degree of it, but it's really not to the degree that really honors what God says, what he does. It's, it's just not filled to the fullness of what we read in passages like James. So I've summarized perseverance. It's, it's when a person is able to see necessity in trials. It's when they're able to see value in suffering. And, and like we talked about in Romans 8, not just a particular kind of suffering, but that any kind of inconvenience, any kind of difficulty, whatever it might be, that those things are good, valuable, and necessary because of God's promises and Jesus' example. Jesus' life had its anthem, suffering in hope with perseverance. Let's go to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. So there's some things here in James that, for me, have been very easy to overlook that I have found to be convicting, motivating, and very challenging. Uh, But it's helped me enormously to notice these things. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you consider various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Something I want to say, first of all, that I heard a brother say uh, in a study recently that has also really impacted me about perseverance. Uh, It was when, this is, well, I guess not that recently. It's when I was uh, preparing for the sermons on Galatians and something someone said in response to uh, a study in Galatians I was listening to. He mentioned that when we're suffering, what do we need the most? What we think we need the most is, I need sleep, I need a break, I need it to... You know, something's got to give here, right? I need a break. I need sleep. Something's got to give. What he mentioned was, biblically, what God says we need when we're suffering is not a break. We need more endurance. How valuable is endurance to you? And do you see your need for endurance? Do I see it the way that God defines it, right? So here are some things that have challenged me with this. Verse 2. Notice in the... Uh, In verse 2, in the second part of the verse, when are you to count your trials for all joy? Is it when it's over and you look back? Or as you're looking ahead and God help me in the moment, that's good. It's good to look back. It's good to look ahead. But notice what James says, though. Where does he put his emphasis? When you encounter various trials. A sound faith doesn't talk about the need for endurance. And then in trials, have no joy, no perspective. 
No idea that what you're enduring is actually something needed and valuable. A sound faith is trained to see trials differently in the trial. And that is possible. And you notice in verse 2, how much joy should you count it? All joy. So let me ask you this. Have you learned to count your various trials of all kinds for all joy? Listen, I'm not very old at all. Um, But I've been noticing something that has really impacted me. That there is a reality that life is unrelenting and very difficult. It's emotionally draining. It's emotionally taxing. And again, it can be just unrelenting. But I've seen in God's word something that I've been really trying to focus on, that there is a very special, unique, profound, powerful joy that God puts not in times when things are how we would wish it would be, but there is a profound, exuberant joy that is hidden in grief, it is hidden in inconvenience, calamity, difficulties, and no trial lasts forever, right? There's always deliverance, whether it's in this life or the life to come, there will always be deliverance. But there is a joy in suffering. The invitation of God's word to have a healthy and sound perseverance, find that joy. And all these things tend to relate together, because think about it. If you learn to find joy in suffering, do you think that will help you grow in uh, temperance, emotional self-control? Do you think that would help you grow in having faith in God and having more capacity to still serve and love others, even when it's difficult and emotionally taxing, potentially embittering and discouraging? I think having a sound perseverance helps fuel all of the other qualities that we've studied here this morning. So I just want to encourage you, as this congregation has many who are suffering various trials in various ways. It is possible. God is able to give a great joy, not in the absence of trial, but we are to count it all joy when encountering various trials. Older men, especially, are to lead the way in this perspective, not in an absence of it. That's the lesson for this morning. There's a lot to say about all of these things. I hope that this could be some little window into just how enormously impactful, how important these things are. And I hope the lesson has given you some direction to apply them. If you're here this morning and you recognize that in your relationship with God, that there may be sin in your life, that you are desperately seeking help to figure out how to navigate it and put an end to it, to put it to death, uh, bring those things forward. Uh, We exist to serve each other in matters of faith, not to put on any pretense, but to recognize our mutual need for help to grow. And so if there's a need for encouragement or anything we can do for your faith this morning, please bring it forward. We stand and sing an invitation song.